Specialty Story, session number 125. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. Thank you so much for taking your time to join me today. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and if you are new to this podcast, here at Specialty Stories, my goal is to show you the role of physicians and their specialties out in the world. As you go through your medical training, whether you're a pre-med right now, a medical student, or a resident, as you're going through your training, you're typically exposed to a very narrow slice of what is out there for you. Today's guest is a gastroenterologist and something a little bit different than what I've covered in the past, but looking at his specialty, looking at his clinical realm, I decided to have him on the podcast anyway. Typically, I've avoided military docs on the podcast, but when uh, we reached out to Dr. Lacey, his scope of what he's doing was very, very similar and really kind of an exact replica of what a community-based GI doc would do. And so we had him on and he was an amazing guest and has a lot of great stories to tell. So we start the podcast with finding out when Dr. Lacey first became interested in GI. So that would be, I I guess during my first year and maybe my second year of med school, I really found the medicine part of things fascinating. Uh, the liver I find to be intensely interesting. Inflammatory bowel disease is is incredibly complex and, and interesting. So I really enjoyed that. But um, interesting story. So my father's actually a gastroenterologist. And so I knew for sure when I graduated high school, I knew for absolute sure I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I knew for absolute sure I didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> and uh, those are the only two things I definitely ruled out. And then once I changed my mind and decided, no, medicine's definitely for me. I said, well, okay, well, at least I won't do internal medicine. And, and then and then my third year of med school, I walked into my internal medicine morning report and I said, these are my people. <laughs> and then and then I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll do internal medicine, but I'm not going to do GI. And then I got to residency and it was by far my favorite rotation. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm doing GI too. <laughs> what, what was it about GI being your favorite rotation? Well, it's interesting. So several things. I I really enjoyed the the medicine again. I mean, again, the the liver and inflammatory bowel disease and all this all the stuff that we get to take care of was really interesting. I really like the procedures aspect of things. I've been working with my hands since I was a kid. You know, my dad and I used to do woodworking. I still do some woodworking, and uh, I, I just like working with my hands and the opportunity to deliver therapeutics immediately and help people feel better was really gratifying. One of the things that kind of surprised me though, is how much I liked the people Hmm. in the specialty. Everybody that I met who's a gastroenterologist liked it and was generally a happy person and a fun person to be around. It was just a great team of people to be around. And that's one of the most important things for me is, you know, it's hard now being a solo practitioner, um, but definitely being around a team of folks that you get along with and that are fun to be around was really enjoyable. Do you think it takes a a special type of person kind of noting that these people are fun to be around? It takes a special type of person to, to want to talk about poop all day long. Therefore it kind of leads to them being fun people. 
Well, there's not just poop. We have vomit too. Don't forget. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> don't forget. After coming off a weekend where I had a, a GI bug or food poisoning and had both of those, um, that's, it's a very apropos conversation. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it does. I think it takes a, a unique personality and, you know, certainly I think all the gastroenterologists that I know have a pretty twisted sense of humor. I mean, you just, you kind of have to, to, um, just to be able to keep up with the people that are making, you know, jokes and stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it leads to some interesting interpersonal dynamics, but everybody tends to have a great sense of humor. Everybody tends to be fairly outgoing and personable. Yeah. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good GI doc? So I think you have to love being around people is, is a big thing. The, the reality of a lot of the gastroenterology diseases, and, you know, I'm sure you know this, um, is that you, you tend to spend a lot of time with some of these folks. So for example, if you know my patients with Crohn's disease, in effect, I almost become their primary care doctor in a, in a, in a very real sense. You know, I'm not managing their diabetes and their hypertension and such, but you know, I see them on a more regular basis than even their family practice doc in a lot of cases. So you get to know people, you get to know their stories, you get to know their families, and you really become part of their family. And so I really enjoy that. And I think that's one of the big things that draws people to GI. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the patients that you're seeing as a GI doc. So I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people, when they hear GI, they think colon, they think right intestines, but you were talking about liver earlier. So talk about some of the patients that you're seeing that a GI doc would see kind of day in and day out. Yeah. This, I love this question. So one of the things that I, I like to tell my residents that are rotating with me is that it, this isn't actually true anymore, but now that we've switched from ICD-9 to ICD-10, there's, you know, it multiplied the number of codes by 70,000. But back when we had ICD-9, GI had more ICD-9 codes than any other specialty, including infectious disease. Huh. We have an incredibly variable uh, field. So what I tell my, my, my students is that GI has seven different organs that we deal with. You have the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine, the large intestine, the liver, the pancreas, and I break out the biliary system separately. Mm -hmm. Well, each one of those things gets sick in a wide variety of ways. You can get uh, bleeding, cancers, infections, autoimmune processes, uh, obstructive processes. And so, um, you know, we see a wide variety of patients. I see a lot of probably about 20 to 30% of my practice is liver. So I see a lot of folks with cirrhosis, autoimmune hepatitis, things like that. Uh, I see a lot of people with diseases that most people in just in non-medical society have never heard of. So in my practice in particular, I see a lot of young men at the, uh, at the Camp Lejeune military base. And there's a huge population of folks with eosinophilic esophagitis, just as an example. So it's, it's a disease of young men and that's <laughs> most of my practice. Yeah. So I probably perform 20 to 25 dilations on the esophagus every single month. Well, I mean, you'll never see that in the news, but I mean, it's a big problem that I see. You know, I see colon cancer patients. I see patients with acute and chronic pancreatitis. I see folks with small bowel tumors. I see a lot of irritable bowel syndrome. That's probably my number one. Yeah. I'd say that's probably a third to half of my patients have irritable bowel syndrome. And the ones that aren't seeing me for irritable bowel syndrome probably have it, but they're not actually seeing me for that. Yeah. So huge variety, right? You, you look at, you, you talked about seven different organs, right? Neurology, what did they have? Peripheral nervous system and central nervous system, a bunch of yeah. slackers. 
<laughs> or the heart. Awesome. I mean, the heart's got the heart know, one. Yeah, so, one. And the heart can get sick basically three <laughs> ways. And so, you know, there's a sort of a, a fun rivalry between me and at least my cardiologist in my hospital. So I'm sure they would be willing to say, oh, yeah, he's just a scope jockey. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So yeah. that's, that's a lot of fun. A scope jockey. Gotta love it. That's awesome. <laughs> and it's something you mentioned earlier as far as the procedural aspect. I think a lot of students, when they are in their early part of their journey, they they immediately make that separation. Do I want medicine? Do I want surgery? And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people pick surgery only because they want to have a very procedure heavy career and they don't think about all of the medical subspecialties that are very procedure heavy. So for you in your in a, a typical week or a typical month, what percentage of your time is spent doing procedures? Great question. It's probably it's probably in the neighborhood of 50 to maybe 60. Um, I, I do a lot of procedures. Now, a typical civilian gastroenterologist is probably going to do more. They'll probably do more like 70% because they're going to have, in large practices especially, they'll have nurse practitioners and physicians, physicians assistants actually seeing a lot of their clinic. Mm-hmm. And then that frees them up to do some of the procedures that they're the only ones that are able to do. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the dichotomy between medicine and surgery. When I started my third year rotations, I was trying to decide between medicine and surgery as my top two. And, um, you know, surgery just, I just didn't feel like it was for me. I didn't feel like I felt like if I was going to be a surgeon, I needed my life to revolve around the OR room and I needed to love being in that room. And it just wasn't that big a deal for me. And then when I did medicine, you know, and I started thinking about that, you know, I found this really cool bridge and an opportunity to do some procedure oriented things and, and a lot of medicine oriented things. It's kind of interesting because I think the surgeons see me primarily as a medicine guy. Mm-hmm. And then there's some medical subspecialties that see me as kind of a procedure surgery kind of guy. So it's kind of weird having my feet in both worlds. <laughs> it's kind of like a purgatory in some sense. <laughs> almost, almost. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I don't fit in with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So what does a typical day look like for you? Well, I break my days up into either procedure days or clinic days. So on my procedure days, you know, I'm usually up by about five in the morning. I go work out and then go up to the hospital. We start, we do all of our prep stuff and our team huddle at 6.45 or 7. And then, you know, first patients getting in the room by 7.30. And then we're doing procedures until we're done. So, I mean, I just, I just go all day until we're finished with all the procedures. And then uh, usually at the end of that, it's calling some biopsy results back to patients or going up, you know, to the hospital and seeing the inpatients. So that is one unique part of my practice being a solo practitioner is I'm on call every day. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, so as soon as I'm done with seeing stuff in the clinic or doing procedures, I'm up in the hospital. And then on clinic days, it's about the same. So I'm just substituting clinic for procedures and then, you know, taking calls from the inpatient wards and going up to see people in the ICU and things like that. What percentage of the patients that you're doing procedures on actually come to you with a diagnosis versus the percentage where you're needing to diagnosis and then you you do a procedure? I don't think I've ever been asked that. I would say it's a fairly small percentage of people that are coming to me with a diagnosis. Um if I had to put a number on, I'd probably say 20 to 25% are coming to me with a diagnosis already, um, maybe as high as 35. But the vast majority of people that I see are folks that are coming in with new abdominal pain, new swallowing difficulties, 
they just had a lab drawn for one reason or another and their liver test happened to be a little elevated, things like that. So a lot of new folks. Yeah, which is good for for students who want to to have that sort of uh, diagnosis skill and building that uh, differential and investigation. I tell you what, there's very few specialties where that is more the reality than GI. And I, I, I harp on this with my students and my residents all the time when they come over is the important, you know, there, there are some specialties where you can do enough tests and just shotgun your way into the diagnosis. I mean, you know, if you just not to pick on cardiology, but just to give you an example, <laughs> if someone comes into the ER with acute chest pain and you're trying to, to rule out angina or you're trying to rule out a, you know, a coronary ischemia, everybody's going to get troponins, you know, or cardiac markers. Everybody's going to get an EKG. Everybody's going to get a stress test of some kind. Some percentage of folks get an echo and some percentage of folks get a cath. And that's the algorithm. That's everybody. You're just, you're doing a bunch of tests and there's some, there's some diagnostic, uh, you know, things going on there too. But Mm -hmm. I tell you what, in GI, if you get the history wrong, you are really in trouble. So um, the example I love to use with this is difficulty swallowing. So mm-hmm. no patient ever comes in and says, doc, I've been having esophageal dysphagia for the last <laughs> six months. You know, so they come in and they say they have trouble swallowing. Yeah. Well, I don't know immediately if that means they're having esophageal dysphagia or if they're having oropharyngeal dysphagia or odynophagia or globus. And if you look at the differential diagnoses for those four boxes, there's almost no overlap whatsoever. Yeah. So if you don't get the history right, you get really, really down the wrong path. The other thing that can happen, I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you ever had this happen to you, but a, a common pimp question that the orthopods love to hit the medicine guys with when we would rotate is what's the most commonly missed fracture on any x-ray that you might read? And, you know, it was, it was a trap because the, the answer is the second fracture on any x-ray. So it's, you know, yep. the, the illustrating the point that, you know, you have to have a methodical approach to reading x-rays so you don't see the big tibial fracture and then miss the little malleolar revulsion fracture. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I, I always harp on with my folks is that, you know, if you don't take a good, careful, detailed history, you can end up diagnosing one thing and missing a second. So I'll give you an example. I had a gal when I was a first year fellow had come in with, you know, a year's worth of diarrhea that she was having 10 or 12 stools every single day. And the differential for that's not very long. And one of the things on there is celiac. Well, I tested her for celiac and her antibodies pop positive. I said, great, I can fix that. But something was nagging at me when she had told me that she, uh, you know, she was telling me all of her symptoms. I asked her if she had any weight loss and she said, no, it's been frustrating. I've been gaining weight actually. Well, that makes no sense. You know, if you have such bad malabsorption from celiac disease that you're having 10 to 12 stools a day, you should be losing weight like crazy. And she wasn't. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, here's what we'll do. I'm going to do your EGD so I can do your, you know, biopsies for celiac disease. But let me also do a colonoscopy so I can biopsy you and see if you've got microscopic colitis, which has an association with celiac. So I go in and do the EGD and sure enough, it looks like celiac. I was like, great, I'm going to fix it. No problem. Spin her around and do the colonoscopy. That's, you know, (laughs) spin that bed right around. Uh, And she had a four centimeter rectal cancer at the age of 37. Yeah. I mean, it was on my list, but not that high. And that was the thing that was causing all of her diarrhea. And so that's just to illustrate the point that if you're not taking a really careful, detailed, nuanced history, you can really end up in trouble. So GI is great for that. So did she really have celiac? 
oh yeah, she really had celiac. <laughs> and that was really, you know, causing her to have some degree of iron deficiency. But obviously her main problem uh, was her stage three rectal cancer. Ouch. But I tell you what, if we had not been really on our game and paying attention, it could have gone another six months before we figured something out. Cause we could have easily said, well, you know, uh, you know, three months later, I guess you're not that much better with the diarrhea. Maybe you're getting gluten somewhere and we'll spend three months spinning our wheels until someone finally goes, Oh, you know what? Maybe we should look down below too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's great. GI is just so fun that way. Now you, it, it scares some people away though, because there's no cookbook for it. There's no algorithm. I mean, you really have to be on your game every single patient. And some people really like to have every question be answered by a 10,000 patient trial. Yeah. And we just don't have that. Yeah. You mentioned as, as a solo practitioner, like you're on call all the time. What does that actually look like? So, um, so during the day, I field calls from our inpatient team, the ICU, the ER, and all of the branch clinics, which in my case includes the battalion aid stations for all the Marine units in the Camp Lejeune area. And that is a lot of folks. So at any given day, I might get, um, you know, between five and 10 calls from various places. And some of the time it's just something simple like, hey, doc, I got this liver panel and I wanted to know if this is something I need to send to you or is this something I can just recheck it in a few weeks? And those are pretty simple. And then it can range all the way to, you know, a call from the ER doc. I got this gal. She's crashing. She's got melanoma. She's got cirrhosis. I think this is a variceal bleed and I got to drop everything and run to the ED. So that can definitely derail the day sometimes. Um, but uh, I would say most days are, are fairly are fairly stable. You know, I'll have my procedures in the morning and early afternoon or clinic, same thing. And then I go and do hospital rounds afterwards and then head home. But then in the evenings, yeah, unfortunately, I'm on the hook for anything. So I, uh, I do have a team uh, at Fort Bragg that they'll cover my pager. So they'll, they'll take calls when the pager comes in, you know, uh, you know, some of the nights during the month. But if there's ever a thing that they get and they're like, oh, it's a food impaction. You had to go fish some chicken out of a guy's esophagus. Or if there's some bleeder going on at midnight, you know, they'll call me and say, hey, Brent, you're going to need to go in. It's, you know, because they're two hours away. Uh, so that has been challenging. And, you know, I think the hardest part for me, I don't mind going in or anything. It's, you know, and my family's really supportive. But I think the hardest part for me, honestly, is just that I'm the only guy. Like I said, I really like having a team and mm -hmm. I have a nurse practitioner and that's been great, but there's just something about having another team of a team of guys that have done the same training you have that are, uh, you know, in your corner that you can, you know, ask them for help or, you know, bounce interesting cases off each other. Yeah. So that's, 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 that's something I miss. Yeah. And even, even though I'm not practicing medicine now, I still miss that aspect of, of being in the military is, is having that team around me and yeah. uh, just being around other people. And now I just hang out in my basement and talk to people online. So it's very different. Um, so you've got a, mil you got a million friends. Then. Exactly. exactly. 34,200 according to Instagram. Um, do you feel like you have enough time for family outside of everything that you're doing? So I do now. Let me qualify that though. Um, you know, I, I get up at, uh, you know, I'm up at pretty much four to four thirty every day and I get to the hospital and prep all my charts and go work out and, you know, get to see patients so that when I'm, you know, when the, you know, bell rings at five or whatever, and it's time to go home, I'm done. 
And sometimes I get called in, but fortunately it doesn't happen too terribly often. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when I come home, I'm not thinking about work. I don't have notes that are undone. I don't have charts that I have to read. I do all that stuff when my kids go to sleep. I do all that stuff when my, when, you know, it's not time for me and my wife to hang out. So I feel like I do, but it, it does, um, require some sacrifice, I guess, in terms of, you know, sleep. I'm an early riser, so it's not too big a deal, but, um, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's my, so my, you know, you've heard, you probably heard people say, you know, you can't have it all. I prefer to think the way my mother taught me, which is you can have it all. You just can't have it all at the same time. Yeah. And, and so, you know, for me, it just became a thing that I, I didn't want to give up being really devoted to taking care of my patients. And I didn't want to give up being really devoted to my family when I'm at home with them. So what's got to give? Me time. So yeah, <laughs> and okay. that's okay. Staying, staying up to date on the newest TV shows and what's dropping on Netflix. Oh, heavens. I couldn't tell you who got the rose. <laughs> I couldn't tell you who got voted off the island. I don't even know if those shows are even on anymore. <laughs> they are. Unfortunately, <laughs> they are. You know, yeah. I, I depend, I depend on my, my, uh, my techs and my nurses to keep me up to date on a lot of sports scores and such. <laughs> so yeah, it's okay. What, what does bedtime look like if you're getting up at four or four 30? Uh, depends on if I get called in the hospital, but you know, most nights, you know, like 10, 10 30, something like that. So, okay. um, getting, getting enough sleep, but you know, only just, I would say. Yeah. Okay. What does the training path look like to become a GI doc? So it's, so it's four years of college, four years of med school as, as with everybody. Mm-hmm. And then you do three years of internal medicine residency mm-hmm. And then you do three years of GI fellowship. And after that, it kind of branches actually. So I elected to stop after that. I thought, you know, 14 years after high school, that's (laughs) plenty, I think. Um, But there are opportunities to do sub fellowships actually after you do your regular fellowship in GI. So uh, currently there are four. So you can do an advanced endoscopy year. That's where you learn to do uh, ERCP procedures and endoscopic ultrasound procedures, uh, some of the more advanced endoscopic therapeutics that we have. So that's one. Uh, You can do an advanced year in inflammatory bowel disease. And there are not that many places that do that currently. So, um, but you just do a whole year of, of nothing but Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Most of the time people end up going on to basically being an IBD specialist at an academic medical center. After that, you can do a year in transplant hepatology, or you can do a year in GI motility. And I tried out all four of those things during my fellowship. I had opportunities to rotate through all of those and I enjoyed all of them, but none of them enough to do them to exclusion. Mm. So I elected to just stop at the end of my three years of GI fellowship and I just do general GI. Um, But I still enjoy getting to see some of those patients. And when I get to a point where I need to send them on to one of my colleagues, then I do. How competitive is GI? Well, it's incredibly competitive now, actually. And I think some of that is the, is due to just the popularity of the field generally. I mean, like I said, it's, well, I mean, I'm biased, of course, but <laughs> it is yeah. the best field. Um, but it, it has actually become incredibly competitive. Uh, I couldn't tell you what the acceptance rate is. I know in the military, they, it's mainly, it's a supply demand problem in the military. They yeah. only allocate one or two slots in the Navy per year. I mean, there's, 15 or 18 of us in the entire Navy. Yeah. And I, I think there's more in the army. I think there's 30 or 35, but, um, but now in civilian, you know, your, your average giant f- program may have five or six fellows a year. 
you know, and most of the programs don't even have that. Most programs, it's more like two. Yeah. So you have a real supply problem. Uh, and so each of those spots is highly priced. So it's pretty competitive. Yeah, definitely. For the future primary care docs out there, what do you wish they knew about GI and what you're doing day in and day out to help them do a better job with their GI patients and help you uh, and uh, obviously help their patients in the future? Yeah. So it's interesting. I think if you ask different gastroenterologists, you get very, very different answers. I tend to have a big heart for our family med guys. I know a, I know lots of gastroenterologists that whine about, oh, they got a bad consult. Oh, this GIA, this family practice, this internal med doc doesn't know what they're doing. This is kind of a lame consult. But they forget that we spent three years mm-hmm. learning all this stuff. <laughs> we have the curse of knowledge, right? And so, so many other people aren't burdened with that. And I think... I think that the biggest thing that I would want the primary care docs to get to be good at is and to understand is how important it is to take a really careful, detailed history. So when I get a consult, for example, that says something to the effect of patient with, you know, chest pain, rule out acid reflux. And I go talk to the guy and he says, he starts describing pain that's worse with taking a deep breath and pain that radiates into the shoulder and pain that is intermittent. And I can immediately tell this is not an esophageal issue. And I don't mind it so much. You'll find plenty of people that just really get all up in arms about it and whine and whine. And, you know, it's not that big a deal to me, but I think it would serve the patients better if some folks would take a more careful history and just ask a couple extra questions. I know it's so tough with so many things going on in a 15 to 20 minute appointment, but mm-hmm. yes, those couple extra questions and you save the patient the merry-go-round of coming to my office and being told, oh, you're in the wrong place. Let me send you to ENT. Oh, you're in the wrong place. You know, let me send you to allergy or whatever. Yeah. Have you found any sort of useful feedback loop to those primary care docs to say, hey, I read your referring note. If you potentially would have asked these few extra questions, you may have gone a different route with your differential. Absolutely. So it's uh, perhaps helpful for me that we are a self-contained system. Mm -hmm. So we see patients in the same way that I think a community practice would, but we function as a, as a structural organization. I think we function more like an academic medical center does. So all the family practice guys and all the internal medicine guys are directly downstairs from me. So it's a fairly easy thing for me to, you know, get on the phone with one of them and say, Hey, I just saw Mrs. Jones, by the way, I, I was talking to her and it turns out that this is what's actually going on. She didn't have abdominal pain. She's got right hip pain. And I think she needs a steroid injection in her right hip. You know, I've, I've made that call to folks plenty of times and they say, Oh, you know, I was so rushed that day. Oh man, I, I just need to pay more attention. And almost every time they really appreciate the extra touch, uh, and just, you know, looking out for them and, and paying attention for them. I also do a lot of lectures with the, you know, for the grand rounds and for mm-hmm. the residents. And so I go through some of those things with them just on a regular basis. And then also with the inpatient team. So whenever there's an inpatient uh, consult, I'll go up there and spend 15, 20 minutes talking about the case with them and working through how to do the history and working through how to think about the differential. And I think that's pretty helpful for them. Yeah. So if you're in the civilian community, it requires a little bit more diligence. And so, you know, you also have to be a little careful because, you know, the referring doctors, 
are the lifeblood of your business. So yep. you want to treat them well. I mean, it's yep. the right thing to do anyway, but it's also the smart business thing to do. So, you know, I think, but I think reaching out to them and just saying, Hey, I saw Mrs. Jones. She's going to do great. By the way, I asked this question and this is what kind of gave me the answer. Just something to think about the next time you're seeing someone like this, mm-hmm. you know, as a little tip and everybody that I've had that conversation with has been just massively appreciative. Yeah. It's all, it's all about how you do it, right? Like, yeah. how did you miss this? That That's not the right way to do that. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> not if you want to stay in business. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> what uh, other specialties uh, as a GI doc, what other specialties are you working the closest with? Well, certainly the primary care docs, I, I work with them probably the closest, probably the next closest is going to be the general surgeons. So uh, yeah, I send I send folks over there for getting their hemorrhoids treated. I send folks for obviously colon cancer and other kind of cancer removals. Uh, my reflux patients, I send them for Nissen fund applications. So I definitely see a lot of surgeons. Um, I interact some with the allergists, which is one that your listeners might not be aware of, but our connection with the eosinophilic esophagitis is is uh, is one that the allergists and I share, and I see a ton of those patients. Mm. Um, the critical care guys, I definitely have a good relationship with critical care and emergency medicine, just because I, I get all of their their tough calls. You know, the bleeders and food impactions, and I don't treat cholangitis, but certainly I get calls on their cholangitis patients. So those are probably the biggest ones. What are some of the biggest kind of myths or misconceptions around the field of GI? I tend to have a blind spot for this kind of thing. I tend to see everything through rose colored glasses. Um, I would say one of the myths, one of the myths definitely is that it is a procedure only specialty or, or a procedure specialty where you, where you just sling scopes and that gives you your answers to everything. So one of the things, one of the things that I've observed in uh, like, I go to the American College of Physicians conference uh, pretty frequently, and one of the things that you'll hear referenced is uh, the subspecialties being referred to as either the procedure subspecialties or the cognitive subspecialties. <laughs> and so, the cognitive subspecialties are things like you know uh, allergy and endocrine and neurology. Uh, Don't forget about neurology. Know, neurology, yeah. absolutely <laughs> neurology. Versus cardiology and GI are going to be more the procedure subspecialties. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, GI is a highly, highly cognitive. Subspecialty. I mean, there are there. It's in Crohn's disease and liver are the reason that GI is three years and not two. So a lot of those cognitive subspecialties are two years. But I mean, we have to spend time learning the procedures. But there is a lot of medicine that is practiced by GI. Yeah. Do you ever see GI? Is a random question. I typically don't ask, but this is an interesting one. Do you ever see GI going to a a residency based training program and not a fellowship based? Or do do you have to have that medicine background to even step foot in the GI world? I think if you didn't have the medicine background, I don't think you could get away with having GI be only three years. Yeah. I think it would have to be at least four. Yeah. Because similar to neurology now. Something like that. If you did a medicine intern year followed by a GI fellowship, could you do that? I think there are some people that genuinely could. I will tell you from my standpoint, I think it was incredibly valuable for me to have a full internal medicine residency. I can't tell you the number of times that I've gotten consulted about something and I go down and I make the diagnosis that really should have been made by the internal medicine team. Mm-hmm. Um, not at my hospital. My my guys are perfect. Uh, <laughs> but in case they're listening. Um, but but just as an example, you know, I go, I'll get a call for someone with abdominal pain. I go down and in five minutes, I figure out this guy's got pyelonephritis. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's pretty bread and butter for internal medicine. And so I think if I, I think there's a lot of those kinds of things that you would miss not doing the internal medicine residency. And as a general rule, I tend to be in favor of proposals that that either maybe not increase the length of training, but don't decrease the length of training just because the, com- the variety, the complexity, and the depth of our understanding of the fields of medicine is increasing. It's doubling every five years. Yeah. So we're, we need to spend more time, if anything. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's the hard. argument I'm making all the time with medical schools that like are marketing now. Hey, we get earlier access to clinical rotations. We're going to crunch down your 24 months of, of preclinical work into 16 months or whatever it is and get you out the door into the hospital sooner. I'm like, no, no, that's the wrong direction. <laughs> like yeah. you need more time to learn. We have more knowledge that we're cramming into people's heads. But well, and you, you hear people say all the time, oh, you can just look that up. You can just look that up. That is not true. <laughs> I mean, you're, the whole point of medical school and residency and fellowship is to turn your brain into a computer hard drive. Yeah. That's the whole point. <laughs> you know, you need to be able to just randomly access that little factoid that you picked up that you spent three hours memorizing 10 years later because it ends up being important. Well, you're not going to be able to look that up because you're not going to think to look something like that up. Yeah. So when I was in med school, I went to University of Texas in San Antonio. And at least at the time that I went through, it had the record, the dubious distinction of being of having the highest number of lecture hours during the first year of med school wow. of any school in the country. And I remember sitting in class, you know, thinking about that. I'm like, I don't know. I can't imagine what they'd cut. I feel like we're just (laughs) racing here. Yeah. (laughs) How are you going to cut this stuff? It's incredible. They do. They do. Yeah. I I think it's a mistake, but you know, uh, that's okay. I'll be happy to take people on and show them what we can, show them what we can. (laughs) What do you like the most about being a GI doc? What I like the most so many things. It's hard to, it's hard to, you know, put a number one on it. Uh, you know, I, I, I think for me, it's the depth of the relationships I get to develop with my patients. So getting to hold their hand when they, when they are diagnosed with cirrhosis and we're basically coming down to the end of their life and thinking about hospice, you know, sitting with that family that is pregnant and the wife is newly diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and what's this going to mean for the baby and what's this going to, you know, are we we ever going to get pregnant again? And, you know, um, sitting with a patient that has irritable bowel syndrome and, you know, taking a detailed enough history to figure out that this all started because she has a history of sexual abuse that she never talked to anybody about. And we get her into therapy and give her her life back. I mean, I've got a hundred thousand stories like that. I love, love getting to do that. It's amazing. So it's, it's hard not to come home at the end of the day and just go, I have the coolest job ever. (laughs) (laughs) Poop, 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 poop. It's not about poop. That's, that's the funny thing. I think that's a big misconception, right? It's not all about poop. Well, and here's the thing that's funny is that, is that poop kind of grosses me out and vomit too. Like if my kids are throwing up, man, I, it's, it's hard. It's hard for me. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I can talk about it all day long, but I don't yeah. hardly ever see it. I mean, we do colonoscopies on clean colons. I mean, yeah. I don't, I mean, it's kind of funny because patients will start describing stuff to me like, yeah, I kind of got this stool is doing this. I, I got a picture of it. I'll show you. I, like, I really wish you would not. <laughs> Good. Good. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Point it out on this, on this cartoon chart. I, I like the cartoon poop better. <laughs> yeah. Like oh, the Bristol stool scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious. I don't use that. I can't, I can't look at even pictures of it. It's like, just describe it to me. We'll talk about it. Yeah. That way we don't have to think about it that. <laughs> what do you like the least about being a GI doc other than looking at poop? Oh, um, 
I, I think the thing that was least interesting to me in at least in fellowship is is the biliary side of things. I, I've gotten to where I've started to see enough of it that I'm starting to enjoy it more. But I would say at least for me, I didn't I didn't particularly care for the ERCP procedures and the endoscopic ultrasound procedures. It was one of the things that actually turned me off to cardiology is that I just don't like the black and white, like the radiography type stuff. I, I like it to see stuff in color. So I think that wasn't as interesting. Um, to me. I think, um, you know, all the things that are hard for me about my current specialty is really more to do with the fact that either I'm a solo practitioner, so I'm on call all the time or, uh, you know, or, or something like that, as opposed to the field. I, golly, I spend so much time thinking about how great a job I have. I'm having a hard time coming up with something I like the least. That's a good thing. It's definitely a good thing. Do you see any major changes coming to the field? I know, uh, especially with the the IBD world, that all of these uh, biologic medications are all coming yeah. down the pipe. Um, what what kind of big changes do you see coming that are going to affect the field of GI for future students to be aware of? Yeah, the so so a few things. So I think the field of microbiota research, so like the gut bacteria, there's a huge amount of research going into that and on what that means in terms of therapeutics, you know, we, we're very close, I think, to the ability to do a stool transplant for folks th- that is just basically taking a couple of capsules that have a bunch of bacteria in it. Crapsules. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'm definitely writing that down now. Uh, you know, so I, I think there's a lot of research going into that. So if you're interested in research, there's a lot of opportunities. Yeah. I think from, a, I think one of the things as we start getting into, you know, as, as the national conversation on healthcare expenditure continues, I think you're going to see a lot more discussion about the, you know, sort of the, the procedure based fields, which tend to have higher you know, expenditures and have higher costs associated with them, you know, how those are going to get addressed. And so that could mean some changes for reimbursement coming down the pike. So that's definitely something for people to be aware of. And then, um, I think there's just a lot of unexplored territory. I mean, there's, we have very few therapeutics for, um, irritable bowel syndrome and that's, you know, 50 million people in the country. And, you know, there's, like you said, a lot of new biologics that are coming out down the pipeline for inflammatory bowel disease. And that's really, really exciting. I mean, 20 years ago when Remicade came out, it was the only one. Mm-hmm. And now we've got, you know, a, a dozen. I mean, it's fabulous. Yeah. That's awesome. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a GI doc? Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. No question. And I'm always so sad when I see this, you probably see this on, you know, Facebook groups and, and online fora that, you know, people are like, would you recommend medicine to your kids? No, 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 heck no, absolutely not. Yeah. And you know, maybe I'm just the starry eyed dreamer, but I've never stopped loving it. I mean, this is, uh, I get up every day and I'm excited, even when I'm frustrated with, you know, bureaucracy or feeling like I don't have my supply chain, you know, secured to get all the supplies that I need. Or Mrs. Jones is calling for the fifth time this week <laughs> about her abdominal pain. You know, it's, I, at the end of the day, I still come home. I'm like, man, I've got a great job. Yeah. I, there, yeah, I, I talk about that a lot. I think there are a lot of people who have gone into and continue to go into medicine for the the wrong reasons, and they come out the other end. Uh, another GI pun there, um, uh, <laughs> with just the the wrong expectations, and when they realize that medicine is not that, they they are then jaded and mad, and um, and then it, it, they turn it off for everyone else. So. 
Yeah, but and if you go into it for the reasons, it's good. Yeah, and the administrative realities are are significant. I mean, all the paperwork that we have to do, all the metrics you got to keep up with, all that stuff. But you know what? It's it's, it's not the changing. price we pay. Yeah, it's the price we pay for admission. We need to just kind of get over it and embrace it. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, what last of words of wisdom do you have for the medical student or maybe the the internal medicine resident right now listening, thinking about GI? Well, the thing I always the thing I always tell any students and any residents is that if you're seriously interested in it, make sure you try to secure a rotation in it because you you may love the idea of something, you may or may not love the reality of it. And so if you can be convinced in a two-week or a 30-day rotation that it's not the specialty for you, you needed to be convinced. So, so definitely try to secure rotation, talk to folks in the field. You know, one of the things that was most helpful for me when I was going through residency and trying to decide, am I going to do GI? Am I going to do ID? Am I going to do cardiology is talking to as many people as I could and asking the question, what do you like the best about your specialty? And what do you like the worst? about your specialty. And, you know, when you polarize the questions that way, I think it forces people to come up with something as opposed to just giving you a generic platitude of, oh, you know, it's fun or, oh, I kind of like the procedures. If you say, you know, what's the best thing or what's the worst thing? Mm -hmm. If 29 people tell you that, oh my goodness, I just hate clinic and they do clinic all day, every day, (laughs) that may not be the specialty for you. Yeah. but but yeah, definitely get some experience, get some time rotating it and decide if it's something that you really like. But if you're thinking about GI, if you if you enjoy puzzles, if you enjoy getting to spend time with patients, if you enjoy developing relationships that last for years and you end up taking care of entire families like my Lynch syndrome families, for example, I just do all their colonoscopies on the same day, for example. Uh, you know, it's it's a great field with a lot of opportunities. All right, there you have it. I hope that was helpful for you to get an idea of community-based GI, what is out there. And guess what? You don't have to like poop to be a gastroenterologist or vomit either. So hopefully that was helpful to give you some experience. Dr. Lacey put together a list of articles and other information out there to give you a better idea of the GI field. We'll have a link to that in our show notes which you can find at specialtystories.com and just find our episode today. I hope this episode was helpful for you to give you a better idea of what is out there in the world of medicine for you in the future. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media. 